Right? Let's create space this week for us to know that we are living in the anticipation of Jesus' death, but then also, of course, his resurrection. And so to begin us with that, this week we want to look on this Palm Sunday at, of course, a passage that deals with what we have come to call now Palm Sunday. And so this is in all four Gospels, but this year we're going to take a look at what the Gospel of John has to say about this particular day. And so let's hear John. John says this, The next day the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. And the Pharisees then said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we come to you on this Palm Sunday. Perhaps the weather today is as it should be. As we anticipate this week, not just the sunshine of Easter, but also the mourning, the loss, the fear, the pain of this week, of your death. And so we pray, Lord, as we sit on the precipice of this week, as we hold intention again, struggle and hope. That you would be with us this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So, as children of a pastor, my my four-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old, and almost ten-year-old oftentimes have to go to things that aren't that exciting, and that they really don't want to go to. This is just kind of the reality. I mean, we get invited to things that I may enjoy, that Megan may enjoy, but a lot of times the kids don't enjoy all that much. And so we spend a fair amount of our time, before we ever go to one of these things, preparing them for what is going to happen. And so we let them know, look, there's not going to be any toys. There's not going to be any television. There's not going to be anyone you know. There's going to be someone who's going to talk for a really long time. They're usually like, oh, like you do, Daddy? Yes, like I do. And we do this in in many ways because we are trying to prepare them for the fact that they are about to be bored. Now, I've told you all before, I have no problem with our children being bored. And, and, and research, again, reveals that it's very good for them to actually be bored. It helps to kind of with the creative juices. But what I want them to do is, is, again, it's okay to be bored. I just don't want them to act like they're bored. 
right? I need them to pretend. Most adults, you guys do a pretty good job of this, right? I mean, so we've, we've learned what that's like, how to, how to at least not look like it. So we always say, okay, look, no heavy sighs, no big yawning, and especially because this is their favorite thing to do. Don't, don't whisper, because they always think it's a whisper just because you use a raspy voice, right? And, and don't be like, is it almost over, right? This is typically what they'll do. Don't do that, right? So we want to prepare them that they are about to be bored. I thought of that for today because I wanted to warn you. More than likely, this is going to be the most boring Palm Sunday sermon that you have ever heard. Okay? It's a nervous laughter, but just get ready for it. Get settled in. Because one of the things, the main thing I'm going to talk about today is incredibly boring. Okay? So I want to prepare you so that you can do your best to not look as if you are as bored as you probably will be. Okay? But then secondly, I'm also telling you this because in many ways, I think it is absolutely appropriate for a Palm Sunday sermon to be incredibly boring and mundane. You excited? Good, good. All right. So before we get to the more boring parts of the sermon, let me begin by telling you a couple of other things just about this passage. You may know this already, but... But John is actually the only one of all the Gospels who tells us that the thing that they're putting down are actually palms. Uh, Typically, the other Gospel writers, they either say they were cloaks or they say that they were branches. But it's only John that tells us that they were palms, right? So so if you want to think, I mean, we could have called this Cloak Sunday or Branch Sunday, but that doesn't have a ring to it. So, So thankfully, John is the one who helps us to call this Palm Sunday. So it's the only one that tells us that. But it's also the only Gospel that does not describe in any way the donkey or how they got the donkey, right? So it's the only one, which, which really is kind of a bummer. I mean, I was thinking about that. This is the first time, I'm pretty sure, I looked over. I think this is the first time I've ever preached on John's version of Palm Sunday. And the reason for that is, 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 is the story of how they go and get the donkey and they kind of steal the donkey. That is sermonic gold, Right? John was not thinking about that, and so he didn't include it, unfortunately. And so, so we, we hardly ever actually use John when it comes to Palm Sunday. There's no mention whatsoever. Now, there are other things, of course, that are happening here. Many of you already know. This is the time of Passover, right? And so in Jerusalem, uh, on Passover, things would have swollen up, right? Lots of people. In the Old Testament, the Israelites are told to go to Jerusalem three times for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the tabernacle, the season of tabernacle. And so, so during this time, then Jerusalem swells. Now, there are some historians who would say there's probably over 2 million people in Jerusalem. Others would suggest that's way overblown. But, but, but perhaps more accurately, at least two to two and a half times the normal size of Jerusalem is, is all the people that are there. So if you can imagine that, right? I mean, I, I wasn't here during the Super Bowl, but if you were downtown, my guess is it was pretty crazy, right? So you have that kind of crazed uh, feeling, right? All of this hullabaloo, all of this excitement, but also all of this anxiety and restlessness, all of this is coming together in Jerusalem. And so that's what we see kind of going on in this particular thing. And John begins his passage on this Palm Sunday by saying, on the next day. And whenever you kind of dive into something that says, on the next day, it would probably be wise for you to ask, 
what happened the previous day, right? And so sure enough, what happened the previous day was that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. He had been in Bethany, and you know the story. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And so as you can imagine, it wasn't just Jerusalem that was kind of overhyped and crazy and, and all the hullabaloo, but it was also Bethany, right? Bethany, if you can, you know, think about it. Someone been raised from the dead. It was what everybody was talking about. I mean, this is kind of crazy experience. Someone's been raised from the dead. And so there's all this kind of, uh, this turmoil, if you will, and this excitement, all of these different things that are going on. And John, because he decides not to focus on how they got the donkey, it just simply says that he found the donkey. He focuses more on the crowds. And if you read John, it's a little confusing, but most folks think that what you see is you see a bunch of different crowds coming together. First of all, you have the crowd from Bethany, right? The ones who were so excited about this. And so they're still following Jesus. They're, they're following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. Why? Because they want to see if anything else crazy happens, right? They want to see if there's any other amazing miracles. So they, they, they are kind of going along with Jesus towards Jerusalem. So you have one big crowd coming with him. And then... You have the crowd, John says, coming from Jerusalem out to meet Jesus. And they are echoing Psalm 118, right? Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they've got the palms and they're all excited and they are rushing out to meet Jesus. So think about it. You have a big crowd coming with Jesus to Jerusalem beginning to make the ascent. You have a big crowd from Jerusalem that are coming down and they're all about to meet, right? And there's this frenzied experience. But then, of course, you also have another crowd. I don't know how big of a crowd it is, but it's a group of Pharisees. And the Pharisees, of course, were not very excited about these frenzied crowds, and understandably so. The Pharisees, they wanted the authorities to be in, uh, to be in good relationship with the authorities. And they knew, because Pharisees are pretty smart, think whatever you want about them, they knew that if there was a big crowd that was shouting, hey, this person's the king, and they weren't pointing right, to the king of Rome, or the, emperor, the emperor of Rome, then they knew that there was going to be trouble, right? And so there they are, and they're trying to navigate all of this, and you have a crowd that's out of control, and you have Pharisees who feel out of control in a city that is clearly about to lose all control. This is a combustible time. And that's it. That's the end of this particular part of John's recitation of what happens on this day. It's actually fairly short. I always kind of laugh. It's kind of like when it comes to Christmas and we, we have all of this time where we talk about the birth of Jesus, which is great. Don't get me wrong. Please hear me. But the actual telling of the story is pretty short. Right? And in many ways, this is the same thing with Palm Sunday. Like you, we, we, we make this big deal about this particular day, but actually it's about eight verses of all of the Bible, and, and then it's over. And, and the question then is, well, what do we do with these verses 12 through 19? What does it, what does it say to us at all? And there's a couple quick things that came to my mind as I was thinking about what might we talk about this morning. The first thing... Well, the first thing reminded me, actually, of a story of a while back. I, I've told you all, I lived in Scotland for a while, and, 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 and I hadn't even thought about this for a really long time. But I, I went, like, the end of August, early September. I came back home in December, the end of December, just so that I could be back for a couple of weeks for Christmas. And, 
I flew into Pensacola, Florida, where my mom was. And, and, and it was the strangest thing because as we began to drive from the airport to my house, about a 30-minute drive, I, was, I noticed, I kept noticing these signs at restaurants and at fast food chains. And I'm telling you, almost everyone was talking about how they had food that was low-carb. Low-carb food. Looking for low carbs? Come here. And, and, I, and I thought, well, well, well this is weird. And, and what had happened, I guess, and you may not remember this, maybe you remember this, is, is, is that it must have been as soon as I took off from Newark, New Jersey, all of a sudden, to go to Scotland, all of a sudden, the low-carb frenzy must have started. Where everybody was talking about they wanted a diet that was low carb. So that all of a sudden, right, I came back to a normal place, what I thought was a normal place, and I had missed out on all of this conversation that everybody else was having. And I'm I'm here to tell you, I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this, but it was super weird. Because I was like, why does everyone care about low carbs and what has happened to my country? Because I thought I knew everything, and, and it was like one of the very first experiences I have ever had of how frenetic crowds can become. And before you know it, they can, everybody can be talking about the same thing and think, this is amazing, and can think of nothing else, and everyone's running around like crazy. I mean, I, I, was, I was thinking about it this week, I realized there was one other time that happened before that. That was in the 80s with Cabbage Patch Kids. You guys remember that? Oh, my goodness. But there's almost this, 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 this kind of swell, this almost panic, right? And it's, it's very weird how quickly a group of people can be obsessed and frantic and manic over something. And one of the interesting things about the way that John tells the story is that John says, as they were leaving Jerusalem, the crowds, before they had even seen Jesus, they were already cheering. They were already chanting the 118th Psalm. Like, so, so think about this. Many of them who probably had never even hardly heard of Jesus and had no idea who he actually was. Maybe they'd heard a couple things about what he had done, but they really didn't know him. But people were like handing out palms and they're like, hey, we're getting excited. Let's do this. And so this crowd is frenetic and perhaps had absolutely no idea why they were. They just looked around and everybody else seemed excited. And if you seem excited and if this diet seems to work for you, well, I'm sure it's going to work for me. It's going to be quick. It's going to be easy. It's going to be wonderful. So let's go. And so they all just are sitting and they're cheering and they're going out. And it is this kind of strange thing. One commentator says that perhaps one of the things that John is trying to do is he is trying to warn followers of Jesus, warn Christians that whenever everyone else, whether this is religious or not, it matters not, whenever everybody else, whenever everyone around you seems to be going crazy and almost losing their mind and are so excited about something, it would be wise to take a step off the train for a moment and to discern what is actually happening. Christians, I've got to tell you, we are pretty good. I'm not going to name any of the books or any of the people that I'm thinking about for fear that I will offend some of you. But I have been amazed at times how frenetic even Christians and excited they have been about certain things or certain people that may not actually be all that good, but because everybody else is posting about it or everybody else is talking about it, you quickly get caught up in the excitement of it all. And so one of the things I think that John may be doing is just telling us to use our brains at times 
and to take a step back. And if everybody else is all crazy about something, step back and just make sure what they're crazy about is something that is true and right. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, Jerry, if this is true, it seems a little bit odd because you are a pastor, which is true. And you are saying, are you saying that you should be concerned that all these people were excited about Jesus? Right? I mean, I mean, wasn't that a good thing for all of them to be worshiping and to be excited about Jesus? And I would tell you, if you asked, I would tell you, thank you for asking, I would tell you that yes, I think it's good to be excited about Jesus. It's good to celebrate Jesus. But the question that we always have to ask when it comes to this particular passage is whether or not they were actually excited about who Jesus truly was or whether or not they were excited about who they wanted Jesus to be or who they hoped that he would be. I mean, remember, the people coming from Bethany, what they were excited about, many of them, they were excited about the fireworks show. They thought, this is cool stuff. You see somebody raised from the dead, man, this is cool. We want to watch this. Maybe some of them came along and they thought, hey, this guy, he's going to heal us. He's going to heal me. I know he's going to heal me. So I just want to go because I think this person is just going to heal me. That's what he's about. He's about healing people, and I'm excited about that part of it. Or the people coming out from Jerusalem, again, many of them who wouldn't have known much about him, but you notice what they're doing is they're echoing Psalm 118, right? And they're echoing the excitement of this particular psalm, but they also add something to it. You see, they don't just echo the psalm. They also say he is our king. And there's nothing about a king, the king of Israel, in that particular psalm. What they're wanting is they are wanting somebody who is going to come in and conquer. You know this. You've heard this story enough times that they're wanting someone who's going to come in and is going to overthrow the Roman government. And that's who they think Jesus is. And so they are super excited about all of those things. And so William Barclay, the commentator, says, ask this little simple question, which is whether or not they, and whether or not we, are more excited about the Jesus who was actually sent here or whether we're more excited about our own hopes and our own wishes for who this Jesus is going to be or who we hope he will be in our lives. Palm Sunday, this is a typical Sunday, our typical sermon to think through every Palm Sunday to be somewhat introspective in asking the question, are you actually worshiping who Jesus is or who you wish that he would be in your life because all of us we struggle with this at times for some of us our picture of Jesus is simply the person who's going to heal us for others it's simply the one who's going to make us feel better about ourselves for others it's going to be the one who aligns perfectly with our politics or with our particular country for others it's going to be a Jesus who's going to be full of grace and never ask us to change our lives and for others it's going to be a Jesus who is only going to judge and isn't going to have any grace at all many of us we carry around with us a picture or an image of Jesus that may not actually look like who Jesus truly is. Sometimes it's the Jesus we learned about when we were young. Sometimes it's the Jesus that the crowds around us are telling us this is exactly who Jesus is. And so it is always good. Palm Sunday is always a good time, a good moment to stop and to ask the question, who is Jesus? And am I actually worshiping the Jesus who I see in Scripture or simply the one who allows me to keep living the kind of life that I'm living? without ever actually challenging me in any way. 
Who is the Jesus that you are worshiping and are excited about? That's a perfect Palm Sunday question. But as I kept thinking about both of those things, my mind was not drawn to those things because they seemed more exciting. My mind was actually drawn to something in the story much more mundane, much more boring. Try to hang with me for a sec. John doesn't talk about how they went and got a donkey, but he still says that Jesus was on a donkey. And, and, and that's what I kept thinking about this week. That's fairly normal, normal, I suppose. But what I was thinking about was just, just picture for a moment. Just do your best just to picture this. Picture the, 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 the euphoria. Picture all the people coming from one direction and from the next direction or from the other direction and all coming together, right? As I described that, picture the people shouting. Picture the people singing hallelujah, hosanna. Here comes the next king. Picture the people are saying, this guy just raised someone from the dead. Picture all of that anxiety or all of that frenzy, all of that euphoria, all of that excitement. And then... Picture Jesus. Just. This is my donkey sound. See, the, the donkey and the role it plays, people talk about this a lot. I talk about it. I mean, the symbolism of it, it could be lots of different things. Is it, should he have actually been on a horse? Uh, was this actually a great sign? In fact, Ed Memon does a great job of pointing this out today. Was it a sign that, that he's coming in, in peace and not in war? All those things. But that's not nearly, uh, this week, that's not, that's not what, I'm, what, I, what I was thinking about. What I was thinking about was just this incredibly strange juxtaposition of all of the excitement. And then there is Jesus, steady, steady. Stable and plodding on a donkey amidst all of that excitement. So think if you were a bystander. Let's just say a neutral bystander. You weren't caught up in the frenzy, but you were just curious. And so you went and you looked, right? And if nothing else, you thought, well, this is good people watching, right? Because everybody just seems crazy. And so you think, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be some kind of parade. This is some kind of thing that I'm going to go see. And you go and you sit there and you stand and you wait. And finally, you know, it takes forever. And then finally, just enough people separate. And there you see this man just riding on this donkey, steady, stable, and plodding. And here's what you think if you see that. You think this. I kid you not. I feel quite certain of this. You think this. This is the most boring parade I have ever been to. I mean, have you ever been to a parade where there's just one guy on a donkey? Right? We want floats. We want trumpets. Even back at that time, you need some kind of music. You know, you need a bunch of other people. You need a band. You need, you know, I mean, you don't need a, you know, they didn't have the Macy's balloons at that point, but at least something. I mean, you had some palms. But other than that, other than the crowd, what they're actually staring at, the main event is just a man steady, stable, and plodding. And it is really a remarkably boring float. And 
And while everyone else in this scene seems to be so riveted and frenzied, Jesus is just steady and stable and plodding. Part of the reason is because Jesus knows that they don't actually understand what they are so excited about. Or they, he knows that what they're excited about is not who he is. Right, the Gospel of Luke, it will say later on that day that Jesus looked over Jerusalem and wept because he knew they didn't get it. Even John tells us that the disciples later on, the disciples much later, only then did they understand what was happening. And so I guess it's not really all that surprising that amongst all of this excitement that Jesus, he can't quite get into it as much as they can. That he is just steady and stable and plodding on his way to Jerusalem and to his death. See, here's the boring part of this whole thing. I love talking about how we can be shaped like Jesus. I love talking about that. We've talked about it all fall. I love talking about how we can build for God's kingdom. This is big time stuff. This is exciting stuff to think about how we can do all of those things. But here's the problem. More often than not, and by that I mean 99.99% of the time, the ways in which you are shaped more like Jesus and the way in which you build for God's kingdom, do you know how you get there? Steady, stable, plodding. More often than not, discipleship is donkey discipleship. It isn't exciting it isn't riveting. It doesn't cause your hearts to soar more often than not. It is just steady and stable and plodding. One hoof, one step after another. I used a part of this quote not long ago from Eugene Peterson, but it's a great quote. I want you to hear it again. Here's what he says. He says, it's not difficult in such a world as ours to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ. But there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again. But the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. And in our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long donkey-like, oh, that's not what it says, but that's what he means, apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. So what Jesus or what Peterson is talking about there, and it comes out of this book. Do you remember the name of the book? Maybe you do. It's this great book. The title, at least, he takes it from Nietzsche, which is always uh, ironic, which is The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. 
The subtitle is Discipleship in an Instant World. See, I would love to be able to stand up here and try to sell you a package of goods that says you can go from one incredibly exciting religious experience to the next, and as you do so, eventually you will be shaped just like Jesus. And as you do so, you will build for God's kingdom. I would love to stand up here and just tell you that that's the case. But the reality is, it is not, and it would be a lie. But most of us are looking for that quick diet, are we not? We're looking for that low-carb affair. We're looking for that magic pill. We're looking for that quick, rich scheme. We're looking for those things. But the reality is, as Palm Sunday makes it abundantly clear, and as most of our lives will make it abundantly clear, it is not nearly that exciting. What Jesus understood is that it was only in this steady, stable, and plodding walk to Jerusalem that the world would be changed. And the reality for us is that it is only in the steady, stable, plodding, donkey discipleship that our lives and that this community is going to be changed. It can happen, but it will not happen quickly. Several years ago now, I lost 35 pounds. I think it was 35 pounds. Let's see here. Carrie, yeah, no, 34. I want to be honest, right? 34 pounds. I was excited about that. 34 pounds. But here, thank you. Here's what happened. I realized after that, right, it was, it was, it was down the road some. I went back and I had recorded all of this. And what I realized after I went back, after I had lost that 34th pound, I lost basically like not quite or maybe just at a pound a week. And if you had told me at the beginning of this that like a whole week I was going to go, right, one whole week and I was going to not eat nearly what I wanted to and exercise do all those things, at the end of the week I was going to lose a pound, I would not have done it. But because I was kind of in that moment, one of the rare times, willing to steady, stable, plod through that thing, not just for seven days, but for 34 weeks, finally, change began to occur. But that's the kind of thing that leads to transformation. There was a friend of mine who leads what I think is a pretty healthy church, and they just did this survey. And one of, the, one of the things they wanted to do is they asked, how are you feeling spiritually? Are you growing spiritually? Are you, are you becoming more Jesus-centered? And the survey came back, and it wasn't nearly as great as what he had hoped or what I had hoped for him. There were many who were upset, many who thought, no, we're not really growing that much. We're not really changing that much spiritually. And so I felt nervous for him because that's, That's not usually good for a pastor. And so they brought in somebody to, to kind of consult. And you know consultants. I mean, maybe some of you are consultants. Some were good. Some were not as good. But here's what the consultant said. Because I asked, because I was like, well, what, what did he say? You know, did he say fire you? What, what did he say? They said, well, he came. He spoke to about 100 of the leaders. And here's what he said. The primary thing. It wasn't the only thing he said. The primary thing he said, here's, do you guys want to be changed spiritually? Yeah. You want to be more Jesus-centered? Yeah, we do. Let's do this. What do we need to tell us what, what we need to do as church? He said, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to go home and every day 
you need to pray and read the Bible. That's not what we want. We want the church to do something for us to then help us to be shaped more like Jesus and to build for God's kingdom. We don't want, it's not, I've got to do this every day. Now, certainly the church plays a role. This is not as if we have, you know, home groups, mission things, worship, all those things. We play a role, but I'm also here to suggest That if you are in a place where you say, no, I actually want to be shaped more like Jesus. Or if you are in a place say, I would really want to build for God's kingdom. Then this is the boring challenge that you have. Open up the Bible. And begin to read about who Jesus is. Pray to grow in your understanding of who Jesus is. Every day, steady, stable plotting. Now, let me give you at least one example of something to do, because I know sometimes, like, well, where do I start? And everybody has their own view. Oh, you should start with Matthew. You should start with Mark. No, you should totally start with Luke. No, clearly you should start with John. I don't really care. But since Matthew is first, I think, why don't you just start with Matthew? So let me encourage you. You don't have to spend, sometimes people are like, okay, i got to read the whole thing. i got to just, just get through this thing. I would say read it slowly. Start, let's just say start even this week. Start with Matthew. Just read for 10 or 15 minutes. Donkeys are slow and so can you be. And just open it up for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And if you get confused, right, I've gave you a couple of these before, but, but let me just give you, you know, N.T. Wright or Tom Wright, as he's called this, has, has Matthew for everyone. If you get past that, he has Mark for everyone, Luke for everyone, John for everyone. You can see the trend here. So, 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 so do that. There's also this one that's a little bit more uh, uh, um, theological by Dale Bruner, but it's two volumes. It looks very big. It looks very daunting, but it is great. He's this great guy, kind of warmly evangelical Presbyterian guy. I mean, I mean, he's wonderful. There are times when I get done reading something that he wrote about the passage and I just start applauding. I don't expect you to do that. But to help you to kind of open it up, I realize that it is not always the most exciting thing to think about the fact, especially in a society like ours that highlights the flashy and the quick, the exciting, the instantaneous. You too can look just like Jesus in 30 days or less. You cannot. But what you can do, each of us together, is engage in in, in donkey discipleship that slowly begins to open up our eyes to who Jesus actually is and not just to who we hoped he would be. So this Holy Week is as good of a week as any to be honest and mature about this reality. That only as we begin, each and every one of us, to be committed not to the frantic, not to the exciting, but to the transformative change that occurs when you are intentionally committed 
to opening up the scripture and to beginning to grow in our understanding. And as you do so, I am here to tell you, you will begin to look more like the one who rode and not donkey 2,000 years ago. Because he knew that only in so doing could he change the world. So may we be committed to donkey, mundane, sometimes boring discipleship because we know that in doing so, not only will the world around us be changed, but we will be changed as well. Steady, stable, plodding. It may be boring at times, but we and the world will never be the same if we can be committed to that. Amen? Let us pray. God, we like the exciting. We like the instantaneous. And those things have their places. But what we want more than even that, Lord, is we want to be changed. What we desire even more than that, Lord, is for this community and this world to be changed. And so we pray that you would help us as a group of people, as a body of believers to be committed not just to talking about how great it would be if all of these changes could occur, but a people who are willing to put in the steady and the stable and the plodding work that it takes, that we might look more like you and build for your coming kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.